Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Clem Kitchen, and I get to be your host this week. Joining me is Robert O'Brien, the 27th United States National Security Advisor who served President Trump in that position from 2019 until 2021. Today, we'll discuss what the job is and what it's like working for the United States president as his national security advisor. We also talk about uh, Ukraine and the growing sense of restraint on the political right. We talk a lot about China and Taiwan, the growing concerns about Chinese invasion of that island, as well as how the United States can protect itself from Chinese economic espionage. It's a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Robert, thanks for taking time to join me for a conversation. Great to be with you, Kwan. Thank you. So I always like to begin these conversations with uh, a little bit of just background on how individuals in these jobs kind of get there. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you got into this work and, and some of the other stuff that you did prior to being the National Security Advisor to President Trump? Sure. The short version, Kwan, is uh, I was a lawyer in Los Angeles for uh, most of my career, uh, but I came from a family that uh, I, I like to joke and say we had a, a family of undistinguished junior officers over the uh, couple of centuries. And uh, so I, I went in the Army Reserve as a JAG officer, uh, had an opportunity in uh, the mid-90s to go work on a commission handling claims against Iraq arising out of the first Gulf War. I came back to California, went back to practicing law, and then I got involved in a, uh, a couple of presidential campaigns. And uh, in 2005, I went back and served at the U.N., uh, worked under John Bolton as the U.S. alternate representative and did a few other jobs in the Bush administration. Uh, I was the chairman of the a rule of law program for Afghanistan, and, and that held over into the for about a year into the Obama administration. I uh, was a senior advisor to Governor Romney in his presidential campaign, was Scott Walker's national security advisor. And so the, the, the pattern you're getting here is losing presidential campaigns. So if you ever see if you ever see me on a presidential campaign, vote against it. Uh, or short it, uh, you'll uh, you'll make some money. But uh, President Trump was nice enough to, I, I supported President Trump after he w- received the nomination. And uh, uh, he asked me to serve as a special presidential envoy for hostage affairs. And that's how I got to know President Trump. And he, he was a, really believed in bringing Americans who were detained or, or held hostage or brought home. It was a high priority of his. I think he, that was the essence of American first for him. And, and he didn't care how people got there. He didn't care if they were tourists or missionaries or journalists or uh, diplomats, whatever the situation was that, that landed them in a, a hostage situation or a detainee situation, he wanted them home. And 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 we had a lot of success during the, that, that year and a half that I served as his envoy. And, uh, you know, without any any plans of becoming his national security advisor, when Ambassador Bolton left, he he made the call and asked me to join him. And it was a, it was a privilege to do so. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that call. I mean, you're, you're doing this important uh uh, hostage and detainee work. And then, as you say, uh, Ambassador Bolton uh, leaves the White House and then you get a call from the president. What what does he say? What How's that conversation go? Yeah, it was, uh, again, it was somewhat surprising. Uh, I, I was actually in Israel working on a on a case, trying to get a, an Israeli in that case uh, home, uh, his remains home. It was an IDF soldier who'd been killed by Hamas and drugged through the tunnels back to uh, uh, Gaza. And the, the Israeli family had come to Secretary Pompeo and myself and asked if we would help. And, and Secretary Pompeo gave me permission to work for a, a non-American in that case. And, and Ambassador Bolton left. I, I was flying home to Los Angeles and uh, I showed up on a few lists of here are the 10 people that could be national security advisor. And 
I kind of chuckled and told my wife that that won't be me. I'll, I'll see you in LA this weekend. And I, I got a call and asked if I would, I'd come over the following Wednesday to the white house for an interview. And, uh, I did the interview and uh, apparently it went well. So, uh, the president made me, made me the offer next Tuesday. I actually eventually flew home to LA and, uh, uh he was out in LA for a, a visit and asked me to join him. And I jumped on the team. We flew back on air force one and uh, spent the next year and a half in, uh, in DC full time. And you were the you were the fourth NSA to President Trump. Is that right? I, I was. So we had Michael Flynn and H.R. McMaster and John Bolton. That's right. And so talk a little bit about how the the, the president's general approach to national security, foreign policy, the, the types of uh, work that you were advising him on. So the, the job of the assistant of the president for national security affairs or the, the NSA job is uh, to be the principal foreign policy and national security advisor to the president. And I took a little different view of, of my, my work than I think my predecessors did. Uh, and I told the president this in the interview, and I think it may be one of the reasons why he asked me to do the job is, you know, I, I felt that President Trump had a, a very well-defined uh, foreign policy. I thought he should get the best options, the best advice on, on whatever issue he was facing. And then once he made a decision that the departments and agencies should implement that decision, I, I didn't view my job as trying to educate him on, on what his policy should be. I didn't come to the job with a foreign policy agenda. I mean, I, I've got well, well thought out views on a lot of issues, but again, I was staffing the president. I wasn't a principal and I, I hadn't been elected by anybody to, to put my foreign policy in place. And so my job was to make sure the president got, you know, whether it was a long-term issue that we were facing great power competition, for example, or a, an immediate crisis like COVID uh, or uh, the Baghdadi situation to make sure the president got the absolute best advice from his, his cabinet secretaries. And uh, if you wanted my opinion at the end of the day, after hearing from everybody else and, and everyone having had their day in court, uh, I'd give my advice. And then once the president made a decision on how he wanted to proceed, our job at the NSC was to coordinate with the cabinets, uh, the cabinet secretaries and, and their departments and agencies and make sure that uh, the president's foreign policy was implemented. That sounds very reminiscent of the way uh, Secretary Rice would talk about her role when she was the NSA, that that she she wanted to make sure that the president was getting as diverse and as deep uh, counsel as, as he could on those issues. And you know, let's put Michael Flynn aside, uh, but you can see how uh, McMaster's and Bolton both, yeah, they came in with a very developed, comprehensive, and public uh, kind of worldview on foreign policy issues. And uh, I can see the the daylight between how you're describing your approach and and perhaps how they they might have. And it, I think, from at least open press reporting, uh, why the president. Um, kind of chafed against some of that. He probably didn't want to feel like he was being kind of lectured to. He wanted uh, the implementation of, of his view. No, I, I think that's right. And, and, you know, I worked for Condi at the State Department uh, when she was secretary and uh, and she was one of the first visitors I had. I think I, I took office on a Tuesday and she flew back to see me on uh, on a Sunday. We sat in, in her old office, my new office, and she very generously gave me a couple hours of her time. And uh, I, I had a hard time, you know, breaking myself from calling her Madam Secretary. And uh, and she, she was very clear that Robert were colleagues now. It's it's Condi, but uh, she gave me a lot of good advice on that front. And I, and I think Condi tried to follow, and I tried to follow a model established by Brent Scowcroft, who served twice as National Security Advisor under both President Ford and and President Bush, H. W. Bush. And, and again, I tried to implement both in how we ran the NSC with with the meetings and the process, but also how we interacted with the president uh, to follow the Scowcroft model. And, and every National Security Advisor, when they come into office, kind of invokes that it's kind of a mantra that you know we're going to do the scowcroft model but i think it's been followed in the in the the breach more than uh 
uh, you know, regular in regular order. So I, I really did try to restore the Scowcroft model. And and I think when you when you look at what we did with a, a slim down NSC, I mean, when I got there, there were still almost 200 policy professionals. You know, Condi had 106 at the height of Afghanistan, Iraq, global war on terror, a great power competition. She had half that, and and I kind of took that as my model as well. We 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 got a very efficient NSC. Uh, we had an NSC that that really ran on process, where you know, again, all the cabinet agencies and and departments had their their day to to you know give their best views and best options. And if there's a split opinion, uh, I, I'd have each side uh, elect a. Uh, a representative, so it might be Pompeo on one side or Mnuchin on the other, and and we go see the president. I'd make sure the president heard both both sets of views, and uh, but for the most part, we were able to, to drive consensus and go to the president with a, a set of options that we thought were best for the American people. And again, that was derived out of you know deputies committee meetings and 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 weekly principal committee meetings where we got the best uh, input from whether it was Treasury or Commerce or State or Defense or the IC, and we really I think. I think the results of what we did with NATO funding, with getting Baghdadi, with putting Iran in a box, with the new consensus on China, certainly on the peacemaking front with uh, the Abraham Accords, with Serbia, Kosovo, uh, with the healing the Gulf Rift, and, and even Afghanistan, you know, I think the results were, were pretty impressive in, in 18 months. That uh, and, and again, I don't take credit for that. The credit belongs to the president, but I, I think we assisted him in getting there with a a Scowcroft model at the NSC. So I spent uh, a little over 15 years in the U.S. intelligence community working on a, a range of issues. And I'm curious, including some time um, supporting the NSC, and I'm curious about your perspective on the state of the intelligence community. I think we can, I imagine you would agree with this, that look, we're, we're talking about tried and true patriots. We're not talking about people who, who want to do anything less than give the, the nation their all and who work very hard, often with very little recognition. Um, I do wonder sometimes uh, about how well suited the intelligence community is to modern policymakers' needs. I'm, I'm curious as someone who was in the thick of it, uh, in, engaged on these issues, What's your take on the IC? How's it doing? Are there are there specific ways that it needs to evolve to be uh, more aligned to kind of modern statecraft and, and policymaking. That's a that's a that's a big question. And uh, as you know, there are sixteen or seventeen agencies, depending on how you count, uh, that, that make up the IC. And there are places that, that most Americans don't think about when we think about the IC. So, for example, you've got uh, I, at the State Department, you've got uh, you know the Research Department there, which is an important part of the IC. You've got uh, National Geospatial, uh, which does great work. Uh, of course, you've got all the uh, the intelligence uh, components of the, of the armed services of the, the uniform branches. So it's a big, broad, diverse uh, group. You know, we, we tend to think about the CIA and the NSA and ODNI, Director of National Intelligence, as kind of the big ones. But there are a lot of great people out there in, in diverse areas and, and in some very specialized niche areas uh, collecting for the United States. So I, I think when it comes to collection, uh, we're we're second to none. It's uh, it's pretty impressive what we can pull together. Uh, and I, I think the IC, like anything else, it's a, it's a tremendous tool. Uh, they have great abilities, whether it's SIGINT or ELINT or uh, even, you know, human intelligence, what it, however we think of it uh, and how we collect it, it. It gets the policymakers, people like me and the Secretary of State and the you know, CIA director, the folks that have to advise the president, advise Congress on, on what we should be doing. 
it gets us what we need. I think one thing that's, that's I think there are a couple of issues with the intelligence community. One, I think it's like any big bureaucracy, it becomes a little risk adverse. And sometimes we need people that'll, you know, even if they're wrong, that'll, you know, step up with a innovative or, or thoughtful theory that may not fall with conventional wisdom. And you always worry that people might not want to, you know, be the outlier because they're afraid of how it'll affect their career. But we need the outliers. And even if the outliers are wrong, they're provocative and they, they cause us to think about things that uh, maybe look at things a different way and come up with a different solution. So I, I think we need to make sure that the, the IC doesn't get, you know, follow groupthink or conventional wisdom. And I, I think that's always a problem with analysts. And, and again, I think we need to reward people that are willing to take a, an out-of-the-box approach. So, I, you know, and, and then on the analysis, you know, we've got to be careful that we're not fighting the last war. And so we've got a lot of people who are highly skilled and spent spent their you know the, the best years of their life in places like Jalalabad and Kandahar and and Anbar and and Fallujah and places like that and and know that part of the world incredibly well, but but the world's changing and and th- those those places remain important in the United States. We can't ignore them, but our our existential threat comes from the Communist Party of China and and uh, and their Ministry of State Security on the IC front or th- those guys are deadly and serious. And, uh, and of course we still have the, the, the you know, former KGB, what was a former KGB, the FSB and SVR now with the Russians and, uh, the, the Iranians have the MOIS. And so we need to start shifting our, our, our focus, uh, both as a government uh, to the Indo-Pacific, but also to, uh, Russia and the, in Eastern Europe and, and keeping an eye on Iran. And, uh, and so we want to make sure we're not just you know, constantly living in the surge in 2006 in uh, in the glory days of uh, of Baghdad and uh, and the second Bush term, which uh, again we did great work then, and, and and I appreciate the work that our folks on the ground did, kicking doors and developing intelligence and and you know, defeating ISIS and defeating the the Sunni, the the hardcore Saddam holdovers. But you know, at the, at the same time, we got to get prepared for the next you know the next hopefully not war, but the next challenge that we've got, and that's certainly the Indo-Pacific and Eastern Europe. Yeah, and I want to walk through uh, both of those uh, AORs in, in, in a second. Um, on your on your point about uh, risk aversion in the IC, obviously that's one of those things that if you look back at all of the various intelligence reviews, they they always talk, uh, talk about that, creativity and uh, risk aversion and then timeliness and accuracy as well. Um, my experience on that was, you know, there was really never a a lack of willingness uh, or, or or risk aversion at the kind of line analyst level, uh, and maybe even at um, at the kind of team chief level. But where things, especially for the presidential brief, where things got really kind of tight and locked down, was at that 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 mid leadership level, that SES one, SES two level, where you know, look, uh, to some degree, it's understandable. It, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of guts to go to the DCIA or the DNI and say, Hey, listen, we want to put this, um, you know, creative, uh, hypothesis in front of the president and, and, and see if he and his team think this is a, a good idea. And then of course the, the DCIA or the, or the DNIs of course understands that with the president, it's typically always, what have you done for me lately when it comes to Intel? And, you know, it, it can feel a little bit risky there but anyways all that to say yeah i I, I agree with you but i don't even think it's just at the president level and i and i think some of these young agents when i was a the hostage envoy 
Uh, I had some great young agents from the FBI that were working cases and uh, uh, some great special operators where we were dealing with things uh, where, where it was going to be more of a military solution. And I can't tell you how many times I'd have a, a you know, young Lieutenant JG or a SEAL officer pull me aside after having just gotten briefed by a, a combatant commander or the deputy combatant commander and pull me aside and whisper to me, you know, quickly, you know, we, we can get this guy, we can do the rescue, we can make this happen. And, you know, as soon as the senior officer starts walking over, it's, uh, you know, clam up and I'm like, well, son, that's how a bill becomes a law. And uh, we'll, we'll talk, you know, call me in Washington or, or FBI agents pulling me aside saying, hey, you know, we think we've got some, something to a lead here. But again, once it gets to the upper levels, there's a there's a risk aversion uh, that, that with senior policymakers. And it's not just the president, it's with the Secretary of State, it's with DCIA, DNI. Because I think there's a lot of times that, you know, Gina Haspel would have heard something, ha- having been a case officer her whole career and said, hey, that's a great idea. But it, it doesn't get to Gina or it, it didn't get to John Radcliffe or Rick Grinnell or, uh, you know, or, or, or to me. So so it's not just even at the presidential level. I think it's even at the, you know, the assistant secretary level above. And, and I think you're absolutely right. I think some of these young agents and operators are, uh, I mean, they're just the best America's got. They may not have the season judgment and wisdom of you know, having been in the, the job for 20 or 30 years, but they're, they're eager and they're smart and they're, they're willing to take risk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's a fair characterization of kind of the Intel community and, you know, a whole, a whole bunch of institutions that, that you stood on top of and, and that, uh, that characterized, you know, much of our government and even industry. Um, so a, a key part of the point that you were drawing though, is you know, you've got 17 or 18 agencies, um, a, a growing number of which are focused on the domestic threat. So as you were in uh, your position, what types of, um, of, of domestic threat work were you engaged in? What did that look like? Uh, what were the kind of concerns that developed over the course of your time at the White House? Yeah, my, my biggest domestic concern, Klon, was the uh, CCP, the Communist Party of China, and the, the, the People's Republic of China, and their infiltration into the U.S., uh, which is is extensive, pervasive. Uh, there are cells everywhere. Uh, they they have an unbelievable ability to track their uh, their students who are here uh, to to enforce their party orthodox on on Chinese, even you know second and third generation Chinese that are here. Uh, to collect uh, intelligence, uh, to steal our IP. And Christopher Ray talked about this in the summer of 2020 in a speech he gave. We, we gave a series of four speeches, uh, Bill Barr, Chris Ray, myself, and Mike Pompeo, we each gave a speech on China. That, uh, and we each took a different area and kind of laid out the threat. And, and Chris Ray made a, a statement in his speech that I thought was really interesting. I've repeated it several times, that the Chinese IP theft is the largest transfer of wealth in human history. In other words, the Chinese have taken more money and value out of the U.S. over the past 40 years through theft of our intellectual property than any sack of Rome, any you know tra- Trajan's campaign in Dacia. I mean, no one has ever brought back more loot and booty uh, than the Chinese have and, and taken out of this country. And what it's done, it's created a domestic issue because they've hollowed out our, it, our, our industrial base. So it, it, it's not just that they've stolen the ability of the inventor or the manufacturer to get license fees, right? So that if they come and bought the, the invention or bought the IP and paid license fees, that's a lack of, that's a, the, the inventor loses that source of income from the theft. But it's even worse than that because they would take the IP back. They then develop a factory and, and produce the product and they'd subsidize it and they would dump it here in the U S and they'd put the company that originally invented the idea 
or invented the IP out of business. So it's, it wasn't just the loss of the, of the revenue stream from the license. It was the loss of the entire manufacturing capability uh, on, on just an array of, of, of issues and, and, and products and items. And then the factory closes and Americans are out of work and that, that industrial base is transferred to China. And so, so that was a, that's the biggest domestic. Uh, you know, I don't want to call it a domestic startup because it obviously originates in a foreign capital. But that's what I spent most of my time focusing on. Uh, look, there are certainly threats here. We had an we have an Antifa threat. You know, we had uh, domestic terrorism on the left. Uh, we're seeing now some of the reports about the, the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and and some of these threats on the right. And, and those are things we need to keep an eye on. But again, I I think they're. I don't want to minimize those threats, but I think the threat that we're facing from the Communist Party of China is a threat to our way of life and our, our future liberty. And I think we got to be very careful about, you know, sending FBI agents out to, to school boards, you know, to watch parents protesting about CRT when they really ought to be trailing, you know, CHICOM agents who are operating here that we know about. And, and we've got to be careful not to let the, our domestic politics uh, you know, influence how the the IC does our our counterintelligence here in the U.S. and and so that was my biggest concern. Again, not that the other concerns aren't important, but you know, when, when you think about our kids, our grandkids going to have you know, liberty and the ability to pursue happiness, not just in America but in the other democracies. You know, that's we're we're facing an existential threat right now. Yeah, I mean, anyone who knows me will know that I'm singing from the same song and music there in terms of the concerns about Chinese. Um, uh, technical espionage, uh, human infiltration, the whole bit on domestic side. And I want to talk about that quite a bit. Uh, and by the way, we've also got, we've got Hezbollah cells all over the country as well. Oh, yeah. And so that's, and, and Iranian cells that are, that are active here. And, uh, you know, not to mention, you know, we've done a pretty good job, I think on ISIS and, and Al Qaeda, but that doesn't stop the self radicalization, uh, that folks get over the internet and that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, our, our, our counterintelligence folks have their hands full with, with, you know, Russia, China, Iran, Hezbollah, and then, you know, the jihadi networks in addition to, you know, some of these domestic groups that are problematic. Yeah. And it does seem, I mean, for years, uh, the, the domestic or homegrown extremism threat was largely associated with, uh, kind of, um, Islamic extremist threats, uh, originating in, in the, in the continental United States, but it, it does seem over the last several years to, have adjusted to some of the kind of what we'll call politically right-wing uh, groups that you mentioned and that are in the news right now, obviously, uh, with uh, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys and, and, and the like. Not only them, but certainly them. Um, what? How did that come up as an issue for you to deal with? Um, I know that you're overwhelmingly focused on, on kind of outside uh, the the continental United States challenges and threats, but as NSA, it, it's correct to say that you do advise the president on domestic homeland security as well. Is that right? You, you do. In my case, uh, we had a great attorney general in Bill Barr, and uh, Chad Wolf was a, our acting homeland security secretary, and, and both very capable men. And so, you know, for the most part, we we certainly coordinated the advice they got, but we left that to the. Uh, the FBI and the, uh, the DOJ and, and Homeland to, to do most of those briefings. You know, I, I would of course be there. And and again, the, the, the threats we saw changed over even the year and a half that I was National Security Advisor. At the outset, we had the BLM movement and and a lot of Antifa. So, I mean, you had situations where uh, you know 
pallets of bricks were being delivered close to the White House and, and uh, a, a really impressive logistics chain, not, not impressive because it's a good thing, but impressive in that uh, you know, these Antifa folks were, were very good at logistics and, and created massive damage. I mean, you know, far greater damage than happened on you know, January 6th, which again, I, I condemned at the time in real time and was a terrible thing to happen to our country. But we also faced, I mean, I was taken to an undisclosed location at least two times because of attacks on the White House uh, that, that are, that by Antifa that, uh, that haven't been covered uh, to the same extent as, as some of the other uh, outbreaks. So both on the far left and the far right, whether you've got Antifa or you've got these, the, the Proud Boys types uh, and, 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 you know, I, I don't even think it's fair to call them far left or far right because I think it's unfair to, to liberals or conservatives. Uh, but but just these domestic extremists, and, and certainly they're being radicalized and coordinating. You know, we know this from from both types of groups. Uh, Antifa was very very savvy uh, using the internet and and using uh, uh, even Twitter to to organize their protests and that would turn violent. And then we know that from these you know chat rooms and 4chan and these various uh, things. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not as savvy uh, technically as you probably are, Klon, but uh, uh, you know, both, both sets of extremists have, been, have figured out how to use modern technology to, to organize and, and to amplify their, not, not just their message for self-radicalization, but also to organize their, uh, their, their attacks or riots or protests or, or what, whatever they're going to be involved in. And so it, it puts a lot of strain on our, our domestic, uh, you know, counter, counter surveillance and counterintelligence folks to, to keep track of that and, and keep us safe. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right in the sense that, um, yeah, no political faction, wherever it is on the on the uh, on the spectrum, has a monopoly on, unfortunately, on on kind of political violence and extremism right now. It does seem to be this proliferating challenge, um, and it has evolved over the course of even my time. You know, kind of engaging these issues. You, um, I just want to touch on this briefly, but you know, you bring up January six. What was what was your day like that day? Like, how did how did those events unfolding? What does that look like from your perspective in the White House? What's going on? That kind of description. Yeah, so so I was actually, and this has been publicly reported. I don't spend a lot of time talking about it. I was in in Florida at Southcom, and uh, we we had a very successful program at the outset of of COVID. Uh, I was very concerned that the cartels, from a lot of intel that we we're receiving, that the cartels were going to attempt to take advantage of of COVID to move a lot of their product. Uh, whether fentanyl or opioids or marijuana or cocaine into the U.S. warehouses here because they they assumed all of our attention would be on COVID. And so Bill Barr and I got together and developed a plan uh, with our, our Coast Guard Commandant, Commandant Schultz, and, and our, our Homeland Security Secretary, Chad Wolf. Uh, we developed an interdiction plan. We wanted to really ramp up uh, what we could do on that front. We had a little uh, difficulty, the... the, the, the uh, uh, the Navy wanted to help, but we had a little difficulty overcoming the Office of Secretary of Defense, which was never really interested in doing anything to protect American civilians in the homeland if it was a, if they thought it was a law enforcement matter. But we overcame those challenges, and uh, and we got the Navy to contribute uh, three or four gray holes to us. We got a couple of white holes, uh, Coast Guard ships, and then we went diplomatically to uh, the the Brits, to the the Dutch who had a frigate in the Carib- Car- uh, Caribbean uh, down in Aruba. And the, the Brits had a Royal Fleet Auxiliary ship, and I think we got the French to contribute, and we got some of our, our Central American allies to give us some landing rights and contribute some troops. And 
we put together a just a, a, a dragnet uh, across the Caribbean and e- even into the Eastern Pacific on the California uh, Baja California border. And over the, the from I think we, we launched it in March until you know January twentieth when I when I turned over the keys to the White House to Jake Sullivan. I was the last senior official there to uh, to uh, hand over things to the Biden administration. The incoming folks, uh, we, we we seized over four billion four billion dollars above the baseline in uh, narcotics that were coming to the U.S. And uh, it was really a successful effort. It just so happened that on January 6th, I was down at Southcom in Miami with Admiral Fallon and, and, and his team, making sure that that, was, that whole program was going to get transitioned to the Biden folks uh, in a uh, uh, you know, professional manner and, and that we would keep it going because we just felt it was, and, and I think for the most part, it has kept going. And it's one of the unsung successes of the, 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 the COVID challenge. And, and, and I think the Trump administration is that that, that operation, which was multinational, uh, whole of government in, you know, involved everyone from the FBI to the Coast Guard to the Navy to the Army. Uh, it, it was really an impressive operation. I think we saved a lot of American lives uh, because we've got a, a, a terrible opioid slash fentanyl slash cocaine uh, narcotics problem in this country. We're losing, you know, 100, 200, 300 people a day. And it's it's heartbreaking. That's that's where I was on January 6th. I was actually in a skiff most of the day until I was pulled out of the skiff uh, by my staff to let me know what was going on. We finally made it back to Washington late that night. Um, but look, in real time, I, I put out tweets on my personal Twitter account and I was impressed by the courage of the vice president uh, staying there. And I spoke to a number of our senators. I was waiting for my, my Coast Guard plane to get me home and uh, uh, certainly condemned the protesters and, and, and did all that very publicly. And it was, uh, as I said, I think that, that day, it was an utter disgrace what, uh, what those people did in the capital. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. So, um, we can transition now to a couple of the key hotspots that we've we've briefly touched on, but we can get into a little more detail there. Um, we should definitely engage China. A um, couple of of things that uh, I think are, are particularly interesting. Um, when you think about China and, and the possible move on Taiwan, do you see that as a uh, growing possibility? Um, what were the types of briefings that you were getting while you were in NSA? Uh, and uh, how would you encourage listeners to this podcast to be thinking about that, uh, that possibility? That's a great question. Uh, look, it's a, it's a very serious concern. Uh, it's the, uh, it might be the most uh, pressing concern that, that Jake Sullivan, the current National Security Advisor, and the President face, uh, Lloyd Austin, the SecDef, and Tony Blinken. Uh, we know from Admiral Davidson, Admiral Davidson, who was the combatant commander for uh, the Indo-PACOM uh, AOR out in Hawaii, at Pearl Harbor, said a couple of years ago that he thought it was a five to seven year window for the, uh, the Chinese to invade, attempt either coerce a, 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 what I'll call an Anschluss, uh, referring to the old Germany, Austria, uh, reunification or unification, or, or to actually invade the launch amphibious invasion of Taiwan. And, and so you know, folks refer to that as the Davidson window. 
I refined it, and I think in the last days I was national security advisor. Uh, I said, look, I think it it's going to be shorter than that. And and since President Biden's taken office, and as the Chinese watch what's happening in Ukraine, uh, there are folks now. I saw a headline today that the one, one analyst is predicting an October uh, 2022 uh, invasion of uh, of Taiwan, and we're seeing that the Chinese put everything in place to be able to do so. I mean, it used to be that there were that would have been unthinkable, especially if the U.S. intervened to protect Taiwan. We'd send a couple of carrier groups and that would be the end of it. Uh, but the Chinese now have, they, they've just launched their third carrier, their fourth carrier is almost ready. Uh, they're launching a new frigate uh, uh, or destroyer every month. Uh, they, they now outnumber the U.S. Navy. Uh, and while our Navy forces are spread across the world, theirs are concentrated in their home waters uh, for the most part. Uh, very capable blue water Navy. They've got anti-access area denial uh, capabilities with uh, hypersonic missiles that, unfortunately, during the Obama administration, we stopped our hypersonic programs. Uh, I, one of the, was it was my number one priority as National Security Advisor on the Defense Front to get our hypersonic program back up and running again, and we were successful in doing that. and And I, we're going to start deploying hypersonics this year, late this year, early next year. Why were those canceled? Did, what What was the Obama administration's rationale for kind of mothballing those programs? Yeah, it's unclear. I think it was the same rationale for mothballing the, you know, for for shutting down the assembly line of the F twenty two, which was is the is still the best fighter we've ever produced. And uh, I, I think there was a feeling that the era of big competition, big power competition, is over. That America had won. That the the arc of history was bending towards justice. That uh, uh, you know, if, if your country had a McDonald's in it, you know, this is Thomas Friedman's famous you know line that two countries with McDonald's have never fought a war before. Uh, you know, that, that it was just, it was the end. I think they bought into the this idea that it was the end of history and that everyone's going to become a, you know, a Democrat, small d, and it uh, would have a democracy. And, and we didn't need these, uh, you know, very sophisticated uh, weapons of, uh, of war. And, and what happened is the Chinese and the Russians were brilliant. I mean, they sent folks over here and, and they, they picked up our entire program. And, and they did a lot of it was without even espionage. They went to universities and picked up what we call, you know, kind of gray sector, not, not, not necessarily classified material, but they went to the universities and they they got all of our research that we conducted since the the space program on hypersonics and they they took it home to Russia and China and they launched programs and they invested money because they understood the the massive tactical and strategic advantage having these weapons would would give their countries and and we slept for eight years and uh, we, we we let the navy deteriorate we let the air force deteriorate. Uh, we were focused on Afghanistan and Iraq, which were important post 9-11, but that was that was our sole focus. And we let our adversaries uh, get a big lead, especially in this area of hypersonics. And uh, and so my, you know, the problem with that is when your adversary has a weapon that you can't, you know, this is a, a missile that can go faster than Mach 5. And we don't have defensive systems to take them down. A Patriot can't take those down. And so if if a adversary launches a conventional hypersonic attack, we've got no response to it. You know, the, the, the next step is escalation to a nuclear situation, which is the last thing you want to have to go to the president to do to say, sir, we can either surrender or we can launch a nuclear attack. There's nothing in between because we don't have the tools. And we're, we're now getting our warfighters the tools they need to, uh, uh, to deter and to defend uh, ourselves and, and, and themselves. Uh, but it was a, uh, it was really a, a, a massive, massive mistake, and, and it's getting fixed, and I'll, I'll give the Biden administration credit. They're continuing with the, the hypersonic program that we got started in the Trump administration, and, and it's moving forward. But uh, going back to your question about Taiwan, I mean, look, the, the Chinese have been very diligent 
And they've been, they've been working for years now to put themselves in a position to do an amphibious assault on Taiwan to, to make sure they've got the, the ships and, and uh, systems to take out Taiwan, but also to have the, the systems and platforms to deter the United States from intervening. So if you're the president, you're thinking about sending the carrier close to Taiwan to defend them and to, to use our, our naval aviation to, to defeat an amphibious landing. We've also got it. We know that our carriers are now at risk because of these Chinese hypersonic weapons that could potentially take out 5,000 Americans on a, on a U.S. aircraft carrier. So the, the, the Chinese have put themselves in a position to move. I think they're considering it. They're watching what's happening in Ukraine and the West response to Ukraine, and they're factoring that in as they make their decision. But I think we've got a very dangerous couple of years ahead of time, ahead of us. And so do you think that it's... it's- depends on how we define success, but do you think a successful Chinese invasion of Taiwan uh, is that there's a potential there for kind of a fait accompli where they could act in such a way uh, to where they can act quickly enough and decisively enough before the United States could really respond to where it just becomes a, a done deal? Is that is that a possibility? And that's our playbook. I mean, the, the, the good news is without getting into details, we've got a few things up our sleeve as well. We're not... Uh, we don't lack all capability to uh, defeat it, uh, defeat a, a Chinese amphibious invasion. We've got some, uh, we've got some exquisite capabilities of our of our own that that many of which aren't public. And so, I, I don't think the Chinese can. I, I think they're trying to put themselves in, in the position to do that kind of an invasion and 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 you know, hit hit fast and and uh, accomplish their goals before we can get into the theater. Uh, but uh, we we've got some things that that could interrupt that. Uh, that that planning and that uh, that that sort of an operation. I'll leave sure. it at that. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. No no reason to press further on that. It's just I think the thing that we would agree on is um, no matter how exquisite uh, our our resources, we've certainly made it harder on ourselves than it needed to be. And if we can spend this kind of window of opportunity here soon on kind of you know, always improving your battle position, right? You know, like digging a better foxhole and, and getting us in a position to be even more effective and efficient and hopefully, ultimately, in a position to deter China from making that move in the first place. That would be... No, the- 100%, 100% Klon. And, and, and look, you know, going to your point, you know, Stalin used to say that uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. And the Chinese are banking on that. So we've got some very sophisticated platforms, uh, but we need to have them in a quantity uh, sufficient to, to defeat the... Uh, the Chinese, it's not just about taking out one ship. The Chinese are going to launch a thousand ships at Taiwan, uh, you know, including civilian ships. So, again, we, we, you know, we need to be very careful that we don't get uh, smug about our capabilities because we've got some uh, some very, very potent uh, weapon systems. But they have quantity on their side. And, and, and that it, it's very difficult to defeat that, that sort of quantity. I mean, look, the Germans learned that in World War II against the Russians, right? Their, their tanks were... I don't know, two, three, four times better than than the Russian tanks, and yet they were they were overrun and uh, and and fortunately, you know, for for history, defeated. But uh, the point is, we we see what what a, a dedicated, especially a totalitarian adversary that has little regard for the lives of their soldiers, sailors, and and uh, and airmen, and, and and a lot of quantity. It's very difficult to stem that tide, and we we need to put ourselves in a position to to a deter that sort of invasion, and then if it happens, to to be able to help our Taiwanese friends defeat it. Yeah, kind of pivoting on that point of scale. One one of the additional challenges of scale that China brings is when we think about their use of industrial espionage. 
Um, the Trump administration was very aggressive. I mean, I was heavily involved on on the conversations on ZTE and Huawei, uh, and we've 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 talked uh, about TikTok uh, toward the end of the Bush or toward the end of the Trump administration. It's in the news now here again. But the the, the underlying challenge, uh, again, going back to this point of scale, is that the same rationale that was operative on conversations about Huawei that specifically. Every Chinese company uh, is bound to avail itself and any data that it collects or holds or otherwise leverages. It has to make all of that available to the CCP. And we know that the Chinese Communist Party does that. Um, so that leaves us in a place where essentially any Chinese tech company and others uh, operating in the United States is, is potentially a real problem. Um, how do you think about that? How do you, how would you recommend the United States start thinking more comprehensively about disrupting Chinese technical espionage in the United States? Well, look, it's a great question. It's a big issue, and and you saw this with Huawei. So when I when I first took office, I was advised by a lot of people and, and very smart people, including in the U.S. government, that there's nothing we can do about Huawei. They won. They're gonna they're gonna be the five G backbone of the whole world, including all of our allies. And we'll have to figure out some encryption tool to, to protect our data because we can't beat Huawei. And, and in a very short order, we beat Huawei. Uh, we, we rallied the West. We rallied our NATO allies. We rallied Australia. Uh, New Zealand was a little more problematic. We got Japan on our on, on board uh, and with, with Prime Minister Abe and then with, with Suga and then, then later Kashiga, Kashida. And uh, so, so we basically, we got India on board. We basically shut down Huawei. And uh, but it took a lot of effort. It was a massive diplomatic effort. And, and I had some very tough conversations with some of our very closest allies that were not interested in seeing the investments that they'd already put into Huawei or or some countries that Huawei had offered them everything for free. And, and my comment was, well, free sounds good, but there's nothing for free. What, what do you think they're going to get in return for owning your information background so that every bit of data that goes up in the cloud also goes to Beijing? And, and it might have overwhelmed an intelligence service in the past. How do you sort through all that data? But with machine learning and algorithms and AI, uh, the Chinese can exploit that data. And so, so we basically stopped Huawei. And now we get to the question of the apps. And TikTok is one of them. And, and it's, you know, parents all over the country are worried about how much time they're spent, their kids are spending on TikTok. But every time their kid gets on TikTok, the, the Chinese Communist Party is getting biometric data on, on their kids. They understand their personality, what they like. And there's going to be a file on every American that watches TikTok in some Ministry of State security database in China. And, and so we saw what we, we tried to ban TikTok and a couple of the other, other uh, apps. We, WeChat is a, a, an app that the, the Chinese use to control their dissidents and to, to threaten people every day in America. Now, we weren't successful. Unfortunately, the, uh, the Biden administration decided to go a different route. Uh, one of the, the, the courts uh, uh, took a dim view of it. I, I, I think that decision was wrong by the courts. And I think the Biden administration should have not just implemented the TikTok ban, but expanded it. We, we saw this happen in India. So you remember a couple of years ago on the line of actual control, there was a brutal attack by a Chinese platoon against an, an Indian patrol. They killed, mutilated them, and, and it couldn't be covered up. And, and the, the tabloids in India you know, showed the mutilation of their soldiers and, and how brutal the Chinese had been uh, in this uh, offensive. And the Indian government, in turn, banned 400 Chinese apps, uh, including TikTok, WeChat, Weibo, you know, all these applications from being used in India because the, the Indians realized the Chinese are scooping up massive amounts of data on our 1.3 billion people. 
and this is this is a uh, you know intelligence and national security nightmare for us. And, and the Chinese are doing the same thing here in America, but we haven't taken the steps that Prime Minister Modi and the Indians took. And and we need to start thinking about doing that and and making sure that we protect the American people from the types of collection that are that are taking place in China. Uh, yeah, 100% agree and write about that frequently. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child, and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms, and it turned into a passive-aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so let's let's now kind of turn to Ukraine. And as we talk about Ukraine, I think one thing that would be especially helpful is if you could obviously give us your insights in in terms of what you're seeing and what you're anticipating, but also there is a growing movement on the kind of right side of the political aisle toward what they euphemistically refer to as as, as restraint. There's a growing kind of restraint movement in uh, particularly conservative politics uh, where, you know, with the recent $40 billion supplemental bill that was, that was passed eventually, uh, for supporting Ukraine, there was, there was a lot of disagreement on the political right about this. And I think that is in fact an emblematic of, of this growing voice, uh, within, uh, Republican and conservative circles. Curious about your thoughts on that. And then the kind of the broader Ukraine, uh, challenge and, and and where you think the United States should be aligning its time and resources um, on Ukraine? Well, let me address the political issue first. I, I spent a lot of time around the country over the past uh, year, year and a half uh, campaigning for and, and supporting Republican candidates, which is a little unusual for a national security advisor, former national security advisor to do. And, and I'm, you know, there's speculation that I was doing it because I was running for president. That's uh, I was doing it because I wanted to see Kevin McCarthy, a fellow Californian and and good friend of mine, uh, you know, elected the Speaker of the House. The other problem is I've, I've got a bunch of friends in, in Congress or who are running for Congress, and I, I can't. I have a hard time saying no when they ask me to help them. So, uh, so I've been out there. So I've, I've got to know the base. And I, I've been to the you know the Utah GOP convention and the Keep Idaho Red rally, and and I, I call this the basiest of the base. And, uh, and these are hardcore Trump supporters and mega supporters and party activists. And I, and I talk about Ukraine, and I, I, I talk about what Ronald Reagan talked about, which is peace or strength. Is you know the, the way to stay out of a war, and and, and people are exhausted by the wars, and, and these are the, the folks that have sent their kids off to go fight in places like Jalalabad and 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 Fallujah and Anbar and and, and all the, uh, the in the Sahel and uh, Burkina and, and Niger. These are the people that send their their sons and daughters out to go to go fight those wars, and so there's an, you know there is a concern and exhaustion that America's overextended and that we're 
we're perhaps fighting in, in wars that we shouldn't be involved in, you know, trying to turn Afghanistan into Sweden or, or that sort of thing. And that's a legitimate concern. And I, I understand the folks uh, who, are, who you know, raise those issues. But Ukraine's a very different situation. You know, Ukraine, the Ukrainians are fighting for themselves. The Ukrainians aren't asking for American airmen to enforce a no-fly zone. They're asking for MiGs so that their own pilots can enforce a no-fly zone over their own country. They're, they're, they're fighting out on the, on the front lines in Donbass uh, and, and, and under incredibly trying circumstances and, and, and fighting for their own country. And they've got massive enlistment. There, there's no lack of morale. There's no lack of, of dedication to fighting. But what they're asking for is for America to be the arsenal of democracy. And, and if we don't stand up for freedom here, and if we don't provide folks in Ukraine or, or other places with the tools and equipment they need to, to stop Russian aggression, uh, you know, eventually it's going to be up to Americans to go do it. And, and so, you know, once you have that conversation, you know, I, I found that, you know, I, I found very little disagreement when, when Americans understand that Ukrainians are fighting for themselves and all they're asking for, from us is for us to give them the tools they need to, to fight the Russians. And, uh, and I think you get a very different uh, response than, than maybe your your standard, you know, Tucker Carlson monologue. And um, and again, I haven't found whether it's in Oklahoma or Nebraska or Idaho or Utah or any of these places I've been that are very conservative and 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 very much uh, you know folks who believe in America first. When you explain the stakes that are at, at issue, when you when you explain that this is the first time since the 1930s that a bigger neighbor has decided to invade a smaller neighbor. Uh, just because they want their natural resources, they want their population, they want to, uh, the, the might makes right that they can, they can expand their empire through conquest. I mean, we haven't recognized territorial expansion through conquest, you know, at least since the UN charter, but, but even a hundred years before that. And so the idea that this is happening today is, is very bad. And when they understand that Xi Jinping in Beijing is watching to see how the West reacts to, uh, Putin's invasion of and, and attempt to, to occupy Ukraine, he's watching that to measure what he's going to do in Taiwan. And, and when Xi Jinping attempts to take Taiwan, and if, if the Chinese communists are successful in taking Taiwan, geopolitically, that's an absolute disaster for the U.S. We could maybe survive a Ukraine being taken over by the Russians. It would be very, very difficult for us in the Indo-Pacific and for our allies to survive a Chinese takeover of, of Taiwan. That's the the court coming out of the champagne bottle in the Pacific and the champagne, the, which is the People's Liberation Army and Navy, will spill all out into the entire Pacific from the Aleutians to Hawaii to Midway to Wake to California to South to all, all the islands that our, our grandfathers and great uncles fought for in World War II. The, the Chinese are going to control the Pacific. That It's such a critical island uh, in Taiwan that... Uh, and that's the most important economic zone in the entire world for the, the, the future of, of, and for the future of our economy. So that would be a travesty. So, so stopping Putin in Ukraine will send a message to Xi Jinping that, you know, we, we might stop him in Taiwan and, and avoid a, a real catastrophe for America and our allies in the Pacific. Yeah, as I've engaged this, you know, I, I can I can engage the the restraint argument on a geopolitical point and then on so just kind of on a raw politics point. On the geopolitical point, Putin has has given every indication that if he were able to roll through Ukraine, that eventually he's going to go. He's going to continue on the expansion. All the same rationales that he used for Ukraine would exist with other countries, including NATO bordering countries. And so, eventually, you know, if if Vladimir Putin is not uh, sufficiently chastised and, and kind of pushed back into his hole, he's going to take an action that even the most restrained 
kind of uh, individual won't be able to kind of look away from, right? It, this, the, I would say that Ukraine already constitutes a significant national interest on our part, in part because of the way you've described it. But then too, even if you don't, he will continue to push. Um, and he has made that very clear. And so unfortunately, we don't have an option of avoiding uh, kind of conflict because, you know, the other guy, and in this case, Putin, he gets a choice and he's making that choice. And he's making it very clearly and publicly. And, you know, sometimes you just have to accept reality. And so you got to engage it. So that's the, no, you're, you're, you're hundred percent right, by the way. I mean, look, he's threatening Poland. Uh, the reason the Finns joined NATO is he said Finland was part of the Russian family. I think the Finns woke up after that speech and said, what the heck? <laughs> and, uh, he's threatening the Baltics. I mean, these are NATO allies. Uh, certainly Moldova and Georgia. So we're, we're going to end up, if, if we don't stop them in Ukraine, it, it, we are going to have American soldiers engage with Russian soldiers in, in one of these other countries. And at that point, the risk of escalation is so high that you've got two massive nuclear powers in, in, a, in a land war. Uh, the, the, the risks to America at that point are, are extraordinary. So we're, we're, we're far better off, as, as you point out, Klan, 100%, you know, letting the Ukrainians try and push the Russians back in Ukraine without asking for American troops on the ground. And if we get them the tools and the platforms they need, I, I think they can get the job done. The problem is we're just not doing it. That's right. No, I completely agree. Um, and, you know, the, 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 just to kind of wrap that portion of the conversation up, I, on the political argument against the, some of the, the kind of the restraint arguments right now is that, you know, you can look back and see when the, when the political bottom fell out for the Biden administration was when he so dramatically mishandled Afghanistan. That, I mean, that was just not only from, from a pure national security perspective was that awful, but just pure politically speaking, Americans don't like to lose. Like there, there was, it was an open conversation about, you know, how long should we stay in Afghanistan and what should that presence look like? That's a, that's a real conversation worth having. But the withdrawal was so incredibly mishandled. And, and you can look at all the numbers, and that is when the Biden administration really, really took a nosedive, and they haven't really recovered. And it, it is amazing to me that, um, there are individuals on on the political right now who think that um, you know if if they win the house and and they take the Senate that somehow cutting off Ukraine and 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 not supporting Ukraine and then having essentially the exact same outcome as what we've seen in Afghanistan that they're somehow going to survive the political ramifications of that that just seems naive and and foolish. And I do not think that they would have the support of the American people if they treated Ukraine the way Biden treated Afghanistan. Well, look, I, I think you're right. With, except for a small portion of uh, maybe the far left that, uh, that don't watch sports, uh, Americans like to win. And uh, like Democrats like to win. <laughs> yeah, these, the, the most rabid fans in the world are the football fans are in some of these blue, blue, uh, deep blue cities. And uh, Americans like winners, and, and and we didn't win in Afghanistan. That was a, a catastrophe, and the way that it was was handled was was really uh, heartbreaking. Especially when we saw thirteen Americans killed at the at the airport and and the Helmut Karzai Airport and and Kabul an Airport that I've flown in and out of a number of times, and uh, and you could see where that was that was going because you know giving up Bagram and not using that as a an evacuation uh, you know center. Put, put our troops in, in terrible peril. So there, there, were, there was one mistake after another. There's been no oversight on it, but, but in some ways the American people know exactly what happened. And, and you're right that the Biden administration's paying a, a high price politically for it. And, and we, we can't make the same mistake in Ukraine. And, and Ukraine's different from Afghanistan in that you've got a highly motivated, big industrial country 
that wants to fight for its own independence and freedom. But what they want from us is you know, the tools to do it. The best argument I heard from one senator who voted against the Ukraine aid package, which I, I was in favor of, uh, is he said, look, we're going to give Ukraine $40 billion, a lot of taxpayer money, uh, big package. That's fine. Every month, the Germans are still today, as of you know July 12th, uh, every day, the Germans are spending $900 million for Russian oil and gas, $30 billion a month. So, so the Germans are going to pay the Russians this month what we gave the Ukrainians in the package. So until we've got the guts as the West to stop with these half-measure sanctions and to fully sanction the Russian Federal Bank, the Central Bank of the Russian Federation, and cut off all oil and gas products, uh, th- this this war is going to keep going because Putin is actually making money on the war. Every day the the price of a barrel of oil goes up a dollar, Putin's making billions. So so our sanctions are spitting in the wind. Our aid package to Ukraine, frankly, was spitting in the wind. Unless we're going to get serious about cutting the Russians off from these these massive uh, inflows of, of cash every month, yeah, and to me, I mean, like that makes a lot of sense to me. My response to that, though, is well, then that's a reason to turn the screw on Russia and Germany, not to screw Ukraine, right? Oh, I, that- yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. I I agree with that. But the point is, is the administration's not making the, you know, they they're making the argument, but they're not actually. They're, you know they're not walking the walk. They're they're talking the talk, but they're not walking the walk. I mean, for example, the the, the MIGs. Why weren't the Polish MIGs got you know given to Ukraine in month one? That that wasn't going to spur a nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia. You know, keep in mind a lot of our grandfathers and fathers fought in Korea and Vietnam. They were shot at every day by Russian MIGs. I mean, there were Russian MIGs in Korea. There were Russian MIGs in Vietnam. We didn't launch a nuclear war or say that was some sort of red line. If the Poles wanted to give the the uh, Ukrainians 29 MIGs, why didn't we facilitate it? I mean, I kind of think back on our administration, you know, Gina Haspel was so you know, clever. Gina would have sold the, the planes to the, the Ukrainians to a, a Russian middleman. Putin would have gotten his 10% cut of it, and, and they would have been in Ukrainian livery the day the next day, and no one would have known what happened. I mean, and instead we had this big public, you know, debacle on, on the MIGs. I mean, so, so look, we got we to gotta cut off the Russians. We got to get the Ukrainians and MiGs already, and we got to give them the long-range artillery and let them defend their country against this Soviet, this this Russian invasion. Yeah, Robert, you and I could keep going. There's a ton of things that we could talk about, but um, you've been very generous with your time already. And we're bumping into an hour, so I, I want to kind of bring it to a close. But um, listen, being the national security advisor to a U.S. president is a big job. It's a tough job, uh, and uh, you know, look, I think the nation owes you. Uh, an appreciation for the work that you did under difficult circumstances on some very difficult issues. So I appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation with me. Thank you. Honored to be with you, Klein. You, you served a long time uh, as well. And so thank you for your service in the IC and, uh, and in government. And let, let's do this again someday. Step into the world of power, loyalty 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.